Father, let us know anew that amazing love by which your Savior died for the likes of me and all these saints, Father, and let us rejoice this morning for the freedom. The chains of sin fell off, O Lord, and the light of Christ came shining in. Let it shine upon us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We'll take a little break from Romans for a couple of weeks. Um, And I'm going to plagiarize the sermon this morning of a great preacher. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, it's it's me. Um, No, it's from last year. Around this time, I did a series called the Gospel Tales. And uh, I think we needed to hear some gospel tales in these next few weeks. And so we'll take a break from Romans for a little while. I promise you we'll go back. We're in chapter 8. We can't, we can't stop there. We're only halfway through the chapter. We'll be back. But um, remember when Martin Lloyd-Jones did his famous series on Romans, he did it on Friday evenings for 13 years. I promise I won't do it for 13 years. I hope I'm here another 13 years, but um, for today, Luke chapter 4, excuse me, verses 40 through 44. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. Because for this purpose I have been sent, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. O Father, in Jesus' name, may we follow after the Christ, O Lord, for healing, for provision, and for salvation, as these followed after him. We pray in his name this morning. Amen. And so we read, when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. He had been up pretty much all night healing everybody. They came out and he just touched them and healed them. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. I have always told you that if you thought I was the Messiah, you wouldn't let me out of your sight. But since you do, I know you know that I'm not. And I'm not, certainly not claiming to be. I have someone one day that said that I claim to be. I said, no, I don't, I don't claim that. Um, I've said it often enough, though. If you knew a man was the Christ of God, you wouldn't let him out of your sight. You'd want him to touch you and heal you and to hear your complaints. And he would because he cares for you. And then he'd preach to you. And he might send you away sad like he did the rich young ruler, Right? He might send you away, oh, there's one more thing you must do for me. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. 
And so it seems that's the case with these, this, these particular crowds that were following him. They just wouldn't, they kept hounding him. They wouldn't let him. I mean, he administered through the night. And when, um, and when it was day, he departed to a deserted place. Now, uh, in the previous passage, Jesus leaves the synagogue in Capernaum. The synagogue in Capernaum, that was the ancestral home of Peter and Andrew. Remember, Peter's mother-in-law uh, was sick in the house when Jesus first came there. And so in this passage, he has the four disciples with him. And you know that if you go back to the Gospel of Mark, which for my money is the most chronological of the four Gospels. And he's with Peter and Andrew and John and James. And they come into Peter's house and his mother-in-law is sick. And um, Jesus, as you know, summarily heals her. And she gets right up and serves them. She washes and then she serves them. But this particular synagogue, because, you know, the synagogue system was, you know, it was, it was actually something relatively new to the, to the uh, Jewish people. There's no synagogue system in the Old Testament. Did you ever notice that? Who else is missing in the Old Testament? There's no synagogues, right? They, first of all, the Old Testament ends when the people are in captivity to Persia. They're not even in the homeland, Right? And they start coming back in different waves under uh, King Cyrus, who allowed them to build the temple, right? And we know that um, uh, Artaxerxes allowed Nehemiah to come and build the wall, and they sent Ezra, right, in the first wave, and Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple as best he could after Nebuchadnezzar had burnt it down. But, for, but the, the synagogue system wasn't even conceived of yet. What else wasn't? in the Old Testament that we find immediately pop up in the New Testament. How about Pharisees and Sadducees? There's none of those in the Old Testament. This all came about in the so-called silent years between the last prophetic voice of the Old Testament and when John the Baptist, the last prophetic voice of the Old Testament in the New Testament, came on the scene, right? And he, again, was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. So John comes on the scene. And during these silent years, all these new developments had happened in Israel. And they must have been okay, because Jesus never condemned the, the, um, the synagogue system. He actually used the system, as did Paul, to get the word out to the Jews that he was the Christ. And you might notice another thing that we don't often notice. It was sort of a what, what has been called by commentators, the messianic secret. The demons knew he was Christ, but he, he, was, he was metering that knowledge out slowly, and so he silenced the demons. Christ does not want to be announced by demons. He wants to be announced by John the Baptist and you and me. All right? So all these things are happening. Peter and Andrew are brothers, and they live in Capernaum with Peter's wife and, his, and her mother, and as far as children or anything, were ne- never apprised. So we're assuming that it's an adult family of four, and uh, their cousins James and John are in business, fishing business with them, to bring you all up to date. And they're all together, and they come into the, they come into the synagogue in Capernaum, and they do various healings, right? And then they come home to Peter's ancestral home. And by, way, by the way, the ruler of that particular synagogue was Jairus, who you remember also, whose daughter became ill, and he sought the help of Jesus. Um, and so it was uh, in that synagogue that the Lord Jesus famously rebuked the demon that possessed one of the worshipers there. It was an extraordinary experience for all 
who were present that day, and so we read, they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, what a word this is. With what authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out, and the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. There was a um, great gossip mechanism in those days. News traveled by mouth really fast, right? And so he goes from the synagogue to Simon's house in Capernaum, and he famously heals Simon's mother-in-law, as I said, he stood over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and she arose and served them food. Now, while they're all still at Simon Peter's house, the multitudes converge there. They just will not leave Jesus alone. There's simply too many urgent needs among the people. He's clearly shown himself for who, le- for who he is, and at this point in his ministry, it seems there's no question about his power and authority. And so we read this, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he healed them all. He laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, uh, crying out and saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he rebuked them and didn't allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. The demons recognized him before the apostles. Friends, because he exists in both worlds, you see, simultaneously. And so the Lord had his first four appointed apostles um, traveling about the countryside. And they headquartered in Peter's own ancestral home. And so after going for some days from city to city and healing and exercising demons, he returns there, presumably for some rest, it seems. And that brings us to today's passage. And so we read that he departed to a deserted place. That's what Christians do. We go out and we depart to a place by ourselves and we re-energize before the Lord. Even Christ in his humanity had to do these things. If you go through and you're careful in your reading, you'll find on many occasions in the gospel stories, Jesus goes off and departs and it's called sometimes a deserted place. Um, maybe he went out to pray. Maybe he simply went out to rest. I mean, he was up all night performing his ministry, healing people. Maybe he went to pray and rest and gather his thoughts and gather his strength, but the crowds were relentless. They saw the miracles. They knew their long-held sicknesses and infirmities could and would be healed if they could come again into his presence. He healed everyone. The Bible doesn't say he only healed some. He healed everyone who came. And word spread about this. And the crowds increased. And the fervor intensified so much so that we read they tried to keep him from leaving them. And who wouldn't try to keep him? I would try to keep him. At least for another day or two. Or take it a day at a time when really my thoughts were, let's keep him here forever. Consider the change in those communities. There's so many sick people in that time, it seems. And demons and demon possessions, it seems, were rampant in that time. We don't see it so much after Christ came. Christ is in the world now, and he's in the world through you and me, by the Holy Spirit that's in us. It's not such a demonic playground as it once was. 
If Luke's accurate in his assessments, then we know that the region was rife with lame and blind and deaf and sick and demon-possessed people. And of a sudden, all that went away when Christ came. All that went away from this little community. It's hardly imaginable that there was anyone who was in any way physically or emotionally or psychologically deficient could simply come out to him and be made whole. And did you notice there's no mention in the passage of faith as a condition for healing? Jesus doesn't need your faith to heal you, contrary to what some denominations say. He can heal you or not heal you. He didn't need your help in creating you. You're not going to say, I came into the world by faith, right? And so there's no mention of faith as a precondition for healing. Christ was just showing who he was and the nature of the God that he was. He's a compassionate, healing God. Now, we might say that to come to Jesus fully expecting that he had the power to heal was evidence of faith. You could say that. Certainly, they knew he was capable of doing this. He wasn't like other healers of the time. But what we do read is that everyone who came to him was healed. Everyone was healed, it said. Now, why would anyone stay home? When the word was out that the Savior was in town or in the neighboring town, you would just walk. Why would anyone stay home? You know, there was a time in America like that. There was a time in America. you got to remember when the, the colonies were still here. We weren't even a nation yet. There was a time that you, you couldn't go down to the movie theater. You couldn't, uh, certainly didn't have a device in your hand that you could watch m- movies and videos and p- political debates or whatever your thing is or log on or go into a dictionary or an encyclopedia or anything. I mean, there was really nothing going on like that. And it was a time when a preacher came to town. That was big news. It would be printed in all the newspapers. You know, even in my lifetime, when Billy Graham would preach in the area, the local newspapers would cover the sermon word for word. We were a different country then. But go back to the colonial times. The first American celebrity was... um, George Whitfield, and he came, and whenever he'd come, if people heard they were coming, they'd get on their horses or they'd run, and they'd drop their hoes and rakes in the field, and they'd run, and they'd go for miles to come into a place where the great evangelist was preaching. It was a time quite like this. Today, they'd say, no, I think I'll stay home, and I'll zoom in on it. But it was a different sort of time, and when people heard this kind of thing, they were hopeful, and they were excited, and frankly, friends, there wasn't much else to do. Um, so all who had a limp or a crawl or needed to be carried would be carried and they'd be and they'd walk away unaided they would walk away healed i can quite imagine that the road would have been littered with old crutches don't need this anymore someone probably had to clean up they probably had to get a an ox and a cart and go by and pick up all the bandages and uh, the masks you know, that, that you see in the Home Depot parking lot, all the masks that are saving everybody. It's down there like a little bed of germs waiting to get you. Um, old crutches and canes and bandages and poultice wraps, right? All littered along the road. Don't need this anymore, right? And they all walked home skipping and jumping and healed like the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple, remember? Why would anyone have stayed home? They were living in a time when medicine was in its infant stages. Not to say that they didn't have some good cures, because they did. Homeopathic remedies for certain things. 
But they didn't have a cure for blindness or for leprosy. Certainly not for harassment from demonic spirits. You couldn't go down and, oh, give me an elixir that will drive out the spirit. You couldn't do that. Um, Leprosy was rampant, it seems, so rampant that whole colonies had to be set up to quarantine those who were infected. Laws were written to keep infectious diseases in check. Sound familiar? Those who suffered from these restrictions and at the same time broke such laws were subject to severe punishment as if ostracization wasn't punishment enough. And then of a sudden, most if not all of the residents were free from their ailments and made whole. Imagine the guy in the town who didn't believe and all the sick, leprous, blind people came skipping back into the town square and he's like, shoot, I missed it. I should have trusted. He would have run down to the next town for, for certain when all his old friends who he thought were dying of their ailments came home all renewed because they were in the presence of Jesus Christ. So all these things were, were rampant at the time. And then of a sudden, most if not all of them were free from their ailments and made whole. Think of the rejoicing, friends. Think of the new freedom, the newly productive lives. Think of whole communities, indeed a whole society, reveling in their newfound health and spiritual freedom. Now, I've known a lot of Jews in my life, and I still do. And I can say from experience that Jews love an occasion to rejoice. Look at the feasts of, of ancient Israel. They love a time to rejoice. The, the Passover, all you could hear during the days of Passover was the singing of the priests and the Jews who knew all the words of the ancient songs, the Hallel, which was a con- uh, compilation of several passages from the Psalms, which were songs, by the way. To us, they're poems. To them, they were songs. And they knew the songs. Remember David's dance when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to the city? Friends, I always like to say that Jews love rejoicing and they're noisy rejoicers. Well, David came out and he danced before the Lord with all his might, it said. In fact, when Michael, David's wife, Saul's daughter, saw the sight, she complained about the dance as David's indecency. I'm not quite sure how to take that. She had a point. He was almost naked. He had a linen, what, ephod, which is a little apron, <laughs> not even like a pair of briefs, so she may have had a point. But she said to him, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his service as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So she chastised her husband for rejoicing too much and too quickly. It's like he ran out in the street, forgot to put his pants on, right? Um, and just to make the point about Jewish exuberance in celebratory moments, David answers her this way. It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this. <laughs> so he doubles down. He doubles down on it and says, no, I'm a Jew and I'm a joyful rejoicer before the Lord. And sometimes I just don't have time to get those pants on. <laughs> you know, I said, I always said that, um, you know, the, the apostles, they were, we like to call them great men. They wouldn't call themselves that. They put their tunics on two legs at a time, just like you and I. That should have been a 
Funny point, but I guess you missed it. So I think there's ample precedent for rejoicing in times of blessing and healing, don't you think? The ark was returning at that time of David. That's why he danced. The Messiah came, and the people would surely rejoice before the Lord. And yet Luke speaks not a word on the subject of community celebration. We don't see the celebrations. I'm presuming they were there. He doesn't talk about it. And so the passage takes another turn. I mean, how many were healed? Hundreds? Maybe thousands? I mean, how many in a multitude? Does anyone know? I don't know. If you find out, let me know. In some ways, it seems to me, if this were the first time I read the passage and other passages like it, if from the Gospels, it was an unexpected turn that Jesus is about to make. After all the healing and freeing, he chooses to proceed with one more work, one more objective in mind. He goes out to preach. And so he says, we read that he said to them, I must preach. They said, no, stay here. They tried to restrain him. They wanted him to stay and heal. And he said, no, I have to preach to the other cities as well. For this purpose, I have been sent. Now he does all these miraculous things and claims another purpose. There are any number of ancillary reasons why the Lord came into the earth, friends, but his purpose in coming was simple. It was to preach. Preaching is and was and ever will be the power of God unto salvation. There will be no substitute for it, friends. We may be healed. We may be freed from spiritual torment. We may be blessed with any number of miraculous benefits from the Lord, but his purpose when he came was to preach the kingdom of God. We may remember from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus called the twelve to himself, and then he gave them this commission. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not enter a city of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach. Now, I did a sermon in the Gospel Tales entitled, As You Go, Preach. That's what we do. That's our calling as evangelicals. As we walk with the Lord, we preach, and we say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friends, preaching is the believer's first commission. It's the principal part of worship. It's the Lord's self-proclaimed purpose in coming into the earth. And it's the power of God to salvation. Now, I've said many times that there are other modes, other mechanisms for leading a soul to Christ, and I'm here to say that that is demonstrably and emphatically untrue. I'm told there are other mechanisms, but I don't see them in the New Testament. No one comes to God apart from the word of God being spoken to him. That's how we come. That's the avenue into his presence is through his word and his word proclaimed. So when I say preach... Uh, I'm going to get into this a bit, but it's, sometimes it's just a conversation, sometimes it's just talking. But the word preach usually means earnestly contend. Friends, if you really love the Lord and really know what you were and what you are now by His grace, it's very easy to be excited about that, particularly when you consider the promises for eternity that other people that you know are so bereft of and have no access to. It's easy to earnestly contend for the faith. That's what preaching is, earnestly contending. And I'm quite certain by now that you heard that the great Saint Francis of Assisi very famously said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. 
Francis of Assisi, you may know something about him. He gave all for Christ. He was from a rich family. He was a priest long before the Reformation. And he's noted as saying, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, I mean no disrespect to Francis, who certainly gave all for his cause, and I respectfully and emphatically disagree with him at the same time. But a side note here, and if you look at your notes, you'll see it in parentheses, I would challenge anyone to source the quotation in his writings. I've been able, unable to verify that he ever said any such thing. I don't know that he said it. P- things get attributed to you that you didn't say. I've had people say to me, why do you say this? I said, never said that. I did a series one time on, on miracles, and I was showing in the Old Testament how sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of years happen to be between miracles. You wouldn't see one for many, many years. I mean, look at the intertestamental period from Malachi to Matthew, which is 450 years roughly, right? We don't know of any miracles that happened there, certainly not from the canon of Scripture, right? So, you know, I was just saying, you know, miracles, you can't live miracle to miracle, as I hear people say, because you're not going to live long enough. And someone said, oh, I really need a miracle. I know you don't believe in miracles. I didn't say that. Can't you keep two things in your mind at one time? All I said is they're far apart in the scripture. All right? Sometimes thousands of years. Sometimes a lifetime away. So, um, no, we get things attributed to us that really aren't to us. And maybe that happened here with Francis of Assisi. I don't know, but I can't source that directly to any of his writings. Um, But even so, I would not direct you to Francis as a useful example for you to emulate. Giving all you have to the poor will almost always earn you praise and is unlikely to earn you criticism or hatred. Having said all of this, however, I will remind the church that the proclaimed gospel is not like that. The proclaimer may receive some accolades from his hearers, but the duty to preach is more likely to come with persecution and consternation, not to mention punishment and ostracization. We're seeing that in other countries now, as close as Canada. Ask any Chinese Christian or Sudanese or Cuban or Canadian. Ask some Canadian evangelical pastors about that. You don't always receive great accolades for preaching God's word. It's precisely because the spoken word does the work that the devil has chosen to oppose so vehemently in the world. He would like us to be silent. But Jesus said, I came to preach. Now, certainly he was ostracized. Certainly he was punished for doing so. And that's because it's the word that does the work to free the soul. It's the word that saves It's the word that changes hearts. It's the word alone that reveals the nature and purpose and reality of God. And if the saints can be deceived into thinking that there are friendlier approaches to evangelism and to salvation, we can be shamed or scared into using other methods. It was James, the Lord's brother, who wrote of this very thing. He said, Lay aside filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. It's the word that will save your soul. Now in saying that, don't attribute other things to me that I didn't say. I in no way diminish our personal witness in exposing the nature of a loving God to the unbeliever. Our witness, I think, is essential. 
Believers must play the part of disciples in every aspect of our lives. We can't just be these um, gross sinners who go around preaching salvation in Christ. It's incongruous, isn't it? You see that, but it's incongruous. We must be loving husbands of our wives, faithful wives to our husbands. We must be caring authorities in the lives of our children that we're made stewards over. We must be charitable to strangers or to any who are in need. We must be loving and caring and nurturing to one another as brothers and sisters of a great household. We must renounce sin and visibly live as those who have renounced it. There should be no argument about these things, but it's the word that saves. With all these things in place, if it were to heal the sick, cast out demons... Give all we have to the poor, they would still be eternally sick. We could do all those things, but if the word didn't enter in, they would be eternally sick, eternally possessed of evil, eternally poor if they've not internalized the proclaimed word of God for themselves. So you can go out and heal the masses, but if they don't have the word of God implanted in their hearts, they'll be healed until they get sick and die again and go to hell. Let's make no mistake. It's the word that's the real healer right? The eternal healer. It was the word who was in the beginning with God. It was the word that created all things. It was the word that brought light to dark minds and life to dead souls. And there's simply no substitute for preaching it, for how else will they hear? Paul said this very things to the Romans, which you well know, being experts in the epistle of Paul to the Romans. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So you're being sent right now. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Look at your feet, friends. Now, everybody, take your shoes off. Look at your feet. Are they beautiful? Then get preaching. Beautify your feet before the Lord. Please leave them on. I was just kidding. Paul said this to the Romans. Now, we all know that not everyone is equally gifted to preach. I think we know that, right? I don't think everyone's equally called to preach. Um, I'm aware of this reality, but consider this. John the Baptist came out of the wilderness as the voice of one, crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. So friends, to preach is simply to give voice to a thing, to make it known, to uncover, to present, or to publish a thing. That's what preaching is. It's talking about something. Consider the Greek. The critical word in the New Testament generally translated as preach is the word evangelizo, Or we might say evangelizo, right? As the lexicon says of it, it is almost always used of the good news concerning the Son of God as proclaimed in the gospel. There's another word, it's caruso. The lexicon says of this word that it means to be a herald or in general to proclaim. So it's two different words, and I bring them up for a reason. Because both of these words are present in today's reading. So Jesus used a slightly different word in two 
of the verses we have before us, which means that there are subtle differences in meaning and application. In verse 43, where Jesus said, I must preach, he uses the word evangelizo. In verse 44, he uses the word caruso. And I'm probably not qualified to comment authoritatively on why the writer chose these words as he did and what exactly is the different emphasis of each, but I think we can surmise it through the context. The first word, evangelizo, refers to an announcement. Jesus is going out to announce himself. So he uses that word. And some of your translations may say announce. The second word, caruso, uh, is what we think of when we speak of preaching as I'm preaching to you from the pulpit now. And I say this because the first sense, in the first sense, Jesus speaks of going on a circuit tour from city to city to proclaim a message, right? To proclaim the evangel, which is the word translated gospel, the evangel. And the pastor or teacher in the church has the more formal calling of preaching and proclaiming truths to the saints gathered for that purpose. And so the calling of a pastor teacher is to proclaim in the sense of caruso. But the call of the saint in the pew is to announce. It's to give voice to the truths that have been given to him as he travels along the way in his daily life. We are all called to preach the word of God. To make the announcement that the Savior has come and is able to save Now, just as Moses said these things, this isn't really a new calling. Consider what Moses said. When we rise up, when we lie down, when we walk by the way, talk about these things. He's just talking about daily conversations. Talk about the things of God. These are the saving things of God. And the emphasis there is, of course, of parents to children. Parents must speak the things of God to their children if they have hopes and expect their children to come to Christ, particularly at an early age. I found an interesting construction in the principles and the writings of Ian Murray on a book that some of us were passing around and some of us read lately. And he wrote this, What has been nearly forgotten today is that the whole Reformation struggle centered, as all great controversies center, on what it means to be a Christian. And then he writes this, Evangelicals, literally gospelers. That's what what the word means. We call ourselves evangelicals. He's saying literally in the Greek, that means gospeler. We are gospelers. Our whole life is tied up in the gospel. So evangelicals left the Roman communion because the true way of salvation was not taught there. That's what our Reformation Fair is about. The real gospelers, the real receivers of the word and the truths of it knew that the church wasn't preaching the truth anymore. The church, friends... The nominal church, it had the name of church, it ceases to be the church if the gospel ceases to be the message of it. So the gospelers, the evangelicals, came out of the dead church. In order for the Christian to fulfill his personal evangelical calling, he must be a gospeler. The word for gospel in the New Testament is the noun form of the verb to preach. Evangelion. The evangelical is called such because his very life is infused with a message. Your life is all about the message. Now that you've come to Christ. The evangelical is a product of his message and he knows it. 
And even at those times when he's not paying attention to this fact, his soul, his thoughts, his fondest hopes are tied up in the notion that he's called to speak his faith out loud as the very center of his life's mission on earth. Even when we're not thinking about it, it's infused in our being. In our hopes and our dreams are all infused with the promises of God. That's who we are now. And so I would say to you today that Christ said to the twelve, as you go preach, that's who we are. We are, as Peter said, a, a generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. We're a chosen generation, friends, chosen by God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, Peter's making a distinction here, and he's formulating a new doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. Of old, in the old Hebrew economy, there was a priestly class. There were priests that were given the the role of proclaiming the word of God. But he's saying we're a kingdom of priests. We all have the role of priests of speaking the word of God in our time. Recently I read an article by Andrea Sue Peterson from the World Magazine. I've sometimes referred to her articles over time. It was called Back to the Word. And when I first preached this sermon a year or so ago, I I spoke of it. And I made a point that I, th- I think she makes a point that we all know, but we perhaps not utilized in our own personal evangelism. And by evangelizing, I mean conversations with unbelievers on any level for any reason. Most conversations, or rather most conversions, friends, will start with a conversation. Is that fair to say? Most conversions will start with a conversation about Jesus Christ and the promises of God. And the evangel, which is the gospel, right? I mean, you can't conceive of someone being saved without at least having a conversation on that. And the conversation will be made between a believer and an unbeliever. That goes without saying, because the believer is saved. The conversation is for the unbeliever. Um, And insofar as we are an equitable people who believe, I think, that everyone has a right to an opinion and a right to voice their opinions, I don't stop anyone for disagreeing with me that's their opinion although we're seeing even that disintegrate in these times they're trying to take away certain people's opinions and those opinions they're trying to squelch are yours and mine but you know why they have the power to do that because we're too silent you can't do that to a noisy group you can only do that to a silent group who's been shamed and cowed into being quiet although we're seeing free speech disintegrate in our times, I can tell you from history, from history I can tell you that our silence will only accelerate and exacerbate the movement to silence us. Silence is death, friends. Friends, think about this. Even the gospel has no power if it's concealed, if it's hidden under a bushel or a basket. Even the word of God has no power if it's not spoken. Let there be light. He spoke it into existence. And so Andrea Sue Peterson was talking about these very things. And so I'd postulate two prevailing conditions in society, friends. One 
is that the curse of God from Romans 1 regarding the so-called depraved mind that we speak of, that we're living in times of, has come upon our society so much so that reason is almost never enough to persuade a person of anything. Do you ever notice that? I mean, when you're arguing with someone and you prove your point, they should say, you know, that's right. I concede. You've taught me something. Are you a big enough person to do that? I think that's a good technique in evangelism, by the way. If you think about it, politically speaking, we really agree on most everything. I don't know if you, if you actually line things up. I mean, nobody really likes crime and poverty. Nobody really likes unchecked immigration. Nobody really likes these things. All right? I think we're in a, in a pretend universe today. I think you'll find we mostly agree on being nice to one another and the golden rule, although we were talking yesterday, some, somebody said, uh, mentioned the golden rule and didn't know that it was Christ's rule. It's like when you're going down Route 24 and there's a big sign with Abraham's Lincoln picture, Abraham Lincoln's picture on it and it says, a house divided cannot stand Abraham Lincoln. No, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln didn't even, didn't even pretend that he made that up. He, it was from Christ. Now, uh, Jesus is much more famous for saying a house divided cannot stand than Abraham Lincoln was and he didn't intend that to be attributed to him. It's some stupid sign company that thought that. Um, so two prevailing conditions in society is one, um, that there's a depraved mind, and people are not moved by reason anymore. In fact, when you lay out facts to prove a point, they'll dispute your facts because their news carrier didn't tell them those facts. So they have no access. They just have your word on it, right? That's why you can't win arguments today. Nobody knows anything anymore, and they're proud of it. I remember Bart Simpson, there was a T-shirt, underachiever and proud of it. That's society today underachiever and proud of it. They just don't know stuff anymore. And Sue Peterson writes that to our language-degraded contemporaries for whom words are whores and listed to mean anything they please, sound counter-argumentation um, counter avails nothing. All you have to do to win an argument is change the meaning of the word. You've seen that recently. Oh, we're not in a recession. Well, recession means this. And the economic authorities of the day say this is the condition of the economy. Oh, no, that, that doesn't mean that anymore. Just change the name. Just change the definition. And so she says, words are whores. Now, what is a whore? It's somebody that sells something valuable for something cheap. That's what it means. All right? It's, it, you're even willing to sell your own dignity to make a point. And so as a remedy, she suggests to limit our own opinions and quote directly from Jesus' own words on the various subjects. Isn't that smart? I've told you many times, everyone, the, the worst God-hater in society wants Jesus on his side. And you'll find that the forces that are against Christianity and the church and conservative causes will quote Jesus from time to time. And, they'll, and what they'll do in that argument is they take the position of strength because they have now a high moral ground because they've quoted Jesus. And they're saying that you're a hypocrite for saying you love Jesus because you're not doing what they're doing. I have, I have people say that to you all the time. For example, I might say in a conversation about socialism that it's historically the most powerful force for evil in the world. It's demonstrably true. The Western world through NATO spent most of my generation's lifetime fighting against it. I can say from experience that reason is a futile defense against the depraved mind. 
But Scripture still carries a great measure of authority. And so rather than voice my opinion on the subject of socialism, which nobody cares about because they've forgotten the history of it and they don't care about the facts, I can simply say what Jesus said. To everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundantly. From, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Now whatever that means, it is not about equal dis- distribution of goods in society. Jesus, my friends, is not a socialist. So just put out his word instead of your own. Because now if they want to disagree, they have to disagree openly with Jesus Christ. Make sure you have the reference ready. It's Matthew 25, 29. And I found that even when my informed opinions failed to convince the opinions, or failed to convince, the opinions of Jesus give pause to almost everyone. We still live in a time when it's not optimal to be shown to disagree with Jesus Christ. People don't like it, certainly not the nominal Christian or Catholic on the street. They don't like to be shown that, they, that their view disagrees with Jesus' expressed view. Now, the great controversy of our day is gender intersectionality. This is where the depraved mind does its best work. Intersectionality is not a real word. It's not a real condition. But the depraved mind has embraced it. The liberal on the street today is not moved by reasoned argument or scientific biological conclusions. Friends, what I'm saying is men are women, men and women are different biologically. Right? But rather, the man on the street today is feeling his way through life. And it feels equitable and it feels nice. In fact, I feel a little nicer than Jesus today about my thoughts. The depraved mind says. And they've been convinced that a person may feel his way, feel his way through on his personal gender identity. You can just feel his way through. It doesn't matter what the doctor said about me when I was born. In fact, I guess they're not saying it anymore. Is that true? They're not saying, Congratulations, you have a new boy, or congratulations, you have a daughter. I guess they're not in some places not allowed to say that, because the child may change his mind at some point. And so the depraved mind on the street thinks that to, to oppose his conclusion is mean and unchristian-like. Because you should just be nice about everything. See, to the, to the unsaved, tolerance is love. Now, Christianity is the most tolerant religion in the world. We are the most tolerant people. But that doesn't mean we're going to say that sin isn't sin. We're not going to say that unreality is reality. That's not tolerance. That's called stupidity. And... Our faith should keep us from that. So hold back your opinions on this subject and simply say, well, I don't know. Jesus said God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Period. So if you disagree, I I get you disagree with me and you don't like my facts and you don't like my news sources, but I know Jesus seems to agree with me, so I'm staying there. People love to believe that they're on the right, on the side of Jesus and that they are wise and loving adherents of his teachings, even though they choose to disagree with him in matters of origins of the universe and natural sciences. But Jesus isn't having it. So they can say, well, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe in what, he, in, in, uh, what the Bible says about the universe and the creation of it. Friends, that doesn't work. Jesus said it to Nicodemus. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Friends, you've got to believe Jesus on every level to say you believe Jesus. 
The Lord claims authority in both realms, heaven and earth. So perhaps Andreas Sue Peterson is right. I think we always knew this. Let the word be proclaimed. It takes rehearsal. It will take some failure and maybe some humiliation. But remember, conversion is, is in the hand of God, the Holy Spirit. We are but an instrument. We can be a hammer or a scalpel. The word of God is not a blunt, blunt instrument. It is a sharp one. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Your argument, your political argument, your religious doctrinal argument may not pierce soul, but the word, the word will. The word will pierce where your argument can't. And of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the hearts. So when you're accused of being judgmental, simply say, it's not the judgment of men that I fear. The Bible says there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give account. And when you're accused of imposing your religion on others, simply say what Paul said to the Romans. Well, that's because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew, for the Greek... For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. The just shall live by faith. Preach the word, my friends, as you go, preach. O Father, in Jesus' name, fill our hearts with the word of God and with the zeal to proclaim it. In this time that would so, so love to silence the gospel, O Lord, we pray that will not be so and we will be instrumental in that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.